Well, welcome to the Pro-Life Team Podcast. This is an exciting day. We're going to have a great conversation and uh, talking about some of the philosophical underpinnings of the uh, abortion debate, uh, some of the reasons why people take the stances that they take, and, uh, and what pro-life people need to not only say, but also do. Uh, the words and also the witness that can change this culture of death into a culture of life. These podcasts are not scripted. The ideas presented may not be the official position of the speakers, the related organizations or the sponsors. These podcasts are free-form dialogues that may include brainstorming and trying on ideas to see how they fit. Please walk with us as we share stories and ideas. So, so, Father Frank and Pastor Michael, I'm glad that you are here on the Pro-Life Team podcast. Um, so, as many people know, Father Frank is has been working full-time for 30 years to, uh, as the head person at Priest for Life, working to um, give a voice to the unborn in order to try and stop abortions. And Pastor Michael was recently um, installed at my church as a pastor at the village, as well as he has a background in philosophy. And so I think this is going to be a, a wonderful episode of a pastor and a priest talking about pro-life um, philosophical points and uh, and ideas. So uh, greetings and welcome, both of you. <laughs> um, Thanks. And so I was going to, and I was going to get us started. So this last Friday, I was on the sidewalk and a woman who was had a sign saying I am Christian and I support safe abortions and and so there's some issues there but one of the things that she said was aren't you support you know don't aren't you glad that aborted babies go to heaven and she was using that as a reason to support her her stance of that abortions were okay because we should be glad that aborted babies are going to heaven so, so Father Frank or Pastor Michael, who would like to go first um, on your thoughts on this, and then we can go back and forth. I have, I have not heard that one as directly before. I don't think in my life, but um, it is a sort of common logic, I think, about a lot of different things. Um, and abortion is not an, an exception to this. I think it's actually part of this. The idea that, um, and actually, we were we were discussing Romans chapter six in a church service last night. That was the the passage of the Bible that we were looking at in the sermon and discussing amongst people as a church last night, me and Jake included. And um it has this phrase where Paul asks if 
grace increases as sin increases. Shouldn't we then sin so that grace can increase all the more? And he says, by no means, like certainly not. And it seems to directly address this exact pattern of thinking that if sinning gets covered by grace, shouldn't you just go ahead and sin then? What's the big deal? And I think what it portrays is that sin itself is bad. And that's, that's the thing that I think a lot we we trick ourselves, not just this person on the sidewalk, but we trick ourselves in a lot of ways when we think this sin gives me this temporary pleasure or it gets me out of this inconvenient situation. Um, so I'm going to lie or I'm going to give in to this temptation to eat bad things for me or to uh, engage in sexual immorality in some way, right? And those are temporary goods to me, and so I want them, and I'm excused. I'm excusing myself because, oh, Grace is going to cover it anyway. Yeah, that that's, I agree with you, Pastor Mike. It's, it's so, you know, in a sense, we can say to people, you know, if you're right about this, then it proves too much. You know, I mean, if I, I, I would think that a newborn baby, if somebody slaughters a newborn baby, that baby is going to go to heaven, you know, or someone, let's say someone was just baptized and they're just coming up out of the, the water, you know, oh, I'm cleansed from sin. You know, okay, I'm going to shoot you right now because you're going to go right to heaven. I mean, it's like, how does one, how does one get into that kind of mindset? You know, actually this question, uh, someone asked Mother Teresa this question one time. And I remember her response was, yeah, that person may go to heaven, but it's not my responsibility to send them there. So, uh, you know, it's it's uh, uh, you see how I think this shows too. we see it in a number of other ways. How the abortion supporters will hijack concepts of faith. They'll hijack them and use them as rationalizations. Uh, but the, uh, it's spiritualizations, you might say. Uh, it, it comes to mind a, a discussion I had one time with Dr. Uh, um, Martin, Martin Haskell. This was an Ohio abortionist who, uh, back in the mid-90s, his medical paper revealed to the American public what came to be known as partial birth abortion, right, where the birth process itself is used as the instrument of killing. I actually talked to the man and I said, how do you how do you do this? I mean, you know, it's a child. And his answer to me was, well, yes, he says, but I don't know when the child receives a soul. So here I was, a priest talking to him about a medical procedure, talking to the doctor about a medical procedure. And the doctor's talking to the priest about souls. So I said, I said, what difference does it make if you know the baby has a soul or not? If you don't know when the baby gets a soul, how do you know that a newborn has a soul? So can you kill the newborn just because you don't know he has a soul? And, and it's it's amazing how these abortion supporters, we of people of faith have to be careful uh, to, 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 to not let these folks hijack our beliefs, our dogmas, our scriptures, our spirituality uh, as a cloak for evil, which, of course, Pastor Michael is just what well, St. Paul is saying in that passage that you quoted. There's there's a similar logic to to euthanasia, and I th I think that you probably already displayed it there. Is that I'm um, I'm trying to kill somebody at a like a good time for them, I guess, and so it's like it's it's thinking of killing as a merciful act. So, right. And so if I can bring a little bit 
philosophy into things. It's it's kind of a consequentialist way of looking at ethics as actions are good so far as they bring about good consequences. But I, I think we can see the fault of that there. Like you said, it, it proves too much. It, it allows so many things that we instinctually know are immoral. And uh, we have responsibilities as morally responsible people to act in righteous ways, right? It, to, act, to act correctly, whether or not it brings about, we think, maybe in the moment, good consequences. Uh, you know, Pastor Michael, I, the other thing I was, I was thinking about when Jacob brought us this example um and and we deal with it we deal with it in the in the catholic community when you've got these these catholic politicians saying well i'm for abortion but i'm going to receive the eucharist you know i i want to receive the body of christ and i say to them well how do you know it's the body of christ you're accepting the authority of of the same uh church that's telling you abortion is wrong so it's not because you believe in the authorities, because you're you're picking and choosing what parts of the authority you want to believe. So same with thing with a woman like this. It, it's like, well, how do you know they're going to heaven? How do you know there is a heaven? Oh, what is it that you really believe in? Doesn't the same historic Christian biblical teaching that tells you that God brings us to heaven also tell you that life is sacred and you can't kill somebody? Uh, so it's a, it's interesting. It's a mm. pick and choose mentality as well yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna be the arbiter of what parts of this authority i want to accept and which ones i don't which means the real authority you're believing in is you not that authority over there yeah definitely true um it's uh so jake and i were talking about this example last night and i was saying it it it, it does seem like a good thing to talk over um part of it is what what are we hoping to accomplish in interacting with a person out on the street like this. Um, what kind of conversation is productive or not? Um, and yeah, how, sh how should we engage? So, I mean, I, I don't tend to work in most of my life on the level of politics or on the level of trying to get together people to vote in a certain way. That's never been anything that I've done. Um, but I do try to persuade people slowly over time, sometimes quickly in short moments, but try to persuade them through use of reason or um, sometimes through authority. But I, I think rarely I've been in that position. I, I've really only been a pastor for like a few weeks. <laughs> this is all very new to me to even even exert any kind of authority. And I, I still don't know that that's going to be the right call in most of my dealings with people. So uh, is, is there anything that you've noticed that tends to work in dealing with somebody who's maybe ignorant, maybe confused, maybe self-justifying, um, but, you know, is a person, an ordinary human being like all of us, uh, what what gets across to them? Uh, you know, it, that question is, is so crucial. I think so many in our audience are, are likely... Uh... Uh, asking that same question, and it brings to my mind a, a woman I helped years ago who was coming, transitioning out of the abortion industry. She had actually run six different clinics, legal clinics, uh, for abortion, and then she came to a point in her life where she realized this was wrong, and she left. Well, she told me how she would um, come into these places 
of course, for work each day. And there would be the pro-life people on the outside, you know, doing what Jacob was doing the other day and trying to talk to the, 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 the moms and the dads who were coming in. And um, she said, you know, she said, when I left, when I made the decision to leave and uh, it became known, um, the first people who reached out to me were those sidewalk counselors. Um, and, and they were the first ones that I wanted to go to. In fact, they were the first ones I told um, that I was leaving. And, uh, and they asked her, you know, why? Why did you come to us? Didn't you see us as the opposition? And she said, here's why I came to you. Because I knew that you knew my pain. I knew that you knew my pain. When we go out there, uh, if we're going to engage these people, uh, or if we're going to protest, if protest at various times is, is appropriate, or if we're going to uh, do anything where we interact with them. Um, if we can show that we know that they're in pain, um, maybe it's because they've had personal involvement with abortion and they're trying to justify it. Uh, but even if that's not the case, they're still they're still in pain. I mean, people who are running these clinics, people who are doing these abortions, uh, they have all kinds of pain going on, internal conflicts on, on a deep level. They know it's wrong, and yet they're, you know, rationalizing and they're they're making excuses and they're telling themselves lies um and a lot of other people are telling them lies too but it hurts and and if we come across with that compassion we say hey listen we're not against you we're, we're just against we're against the killing of these babies but that doesn't mean we're against you and and the kindness and the openness and to let them experience even while we're doing what we're there to do to let them realize that you know what there's an open door here if you ever want to come to us, we're here. We're not your enemy. I think uh, that's the most effective stance. Mm -hmm. What about um, certain uses of language? So, like I heard you say, like, so I, I, I grew up in California. I've been in very liberal political circles my entire life. I've been mostly a political liberal for most of my life, although that's not where I am currently. Um, so when you said killing babies, like that just sets people off. So mm -hmm. I don't disagree with you. Right. Like I would say that that's the objective truth of what's going on, but do you find it useful to hold the line on the language and say, this is what objectively speaking is correct. And I'm not going to vary my language to uh, reduce your, your triggering or whatever, but, or, or is it useful to sometimes adjust things so that it's not immediately off-putting? So that you can it's, continue on the conversation. Absolutely, yeah, I agree with you. And and you know what I'll usually say to them if if it's and a lot of times in these situations it's uh, you know while we're trying to reach the the mom who's going in there to have the abortion, you most of the time it's the people who are uh, the escorts, you know, and the very very uh, uh, hardcore abortion supporters that were standing there, uh, and sometimes they're listening to the things that we're saying if we're addressing the crowd or if we're praying out loud or whatever it is. And what I the approach I take with them is, is to ask them questions. Say, okay, you're here supporting abortion. Um, can you tell me what you, what you mean by that? Uh, could you describe for me what an abortion is? I mean, you're leading these people in here to have the procedure. 
what's your understanding about what happens in an abortion? And so, and because if you say this is the killing of babies, as you say, it's the it's the objective truth, and and certainly as we do our general public education, we say that, but we also have to explain why we say that. And I and I think to to folks like this, if we give them that, they hear it as okay, that's the conclusion, um, and they'll get the the there'll be backlash because I'm leading them immediately to a conclusion rather than presenting the evidence that compels the conclusion. Um, now, what evidence do we have that compels the conclusion? Well, then you go back to like, well, what is, you know, what is the abortion taking out of that, that mother? What are you, what are you doing? And the development of the baby and all of that. And, and, and then of course the harmful effect on the mother too, but to see what are they thinking about? And I found that those who defend abortion tend to be very unwilling to describe it. They're defending it, but they won't describe it. And and I think that's an appropriate place to start. Again, in a very kind way. I mean, some of these people don't want to engage in a reasonable, kind conversation, but for those who do, uh, to go about it in a very kind way and, you know, and ask them questions. I think asking them questions also shows a certain measure of respect because, you know, it's and it's easy for a person to say, I don't want to listen to you. You know, if we're telling them a, a message, I don't want to listen to you. But it's hard for somebody to say, I don't want you to listen to me. Uh, and if we're asking them a question, we're showing them some level of respect. It's like, I'm interested in knowing what's in your mind right now. Are there like common responses that you tend to get? I mean, I... So when I engage in these kind of conversations, it's far away from an abortion, abortion provider of any kind most of the time. It's just usually in a more casual conversation setting. Um, although ha it usually is triggered by some kind of political news. So there's usually, unfortunately, some kind of hot emotion that's flaring. Um, but still, not as much as I think or I imagine would be right on the sidewalk next to an abortion provider. Um, like what kind of back and forth do you tend to get? What, what, so if you ask a question, do they say, well, just removing a bundle of cells? I mean, what's, what's the kind of go-to? Uh, yeah, I, uh, sometimes they'll simply say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's the termination of a pregnancy. Yeah. I'll say, well, so is birth. <laughs> birth ends a pregnancy. So what is it exactly that you're doing in order to end the pregnancy? Um, they will often simply not, not be able to describe it. Now, maybe that's because they don't know, and maybe it's because, again, it's just too painful to actually get to the reality of what this, uh, of what this is. Uh, so, but, but, but it's two basic responses. One is um, they take refuge in the more abstract descriptions of the process. They will never say things like arms, legs, blood, skull, you know, dismember, decapitate. Now, those words are actually in the medical textbooks that describe what abortion is, but they won't be in the, on the lips of those who are defending it. They'll either take that approach, it's just, you know, the abstractions, or some will go the route of saying, oh, yeah, I know this is the taking of a, of a baby's life. I don't have any argument with that. And so they're actually embracing the idea that killing an innocent child is sometimes okay. I, I remember one early on in my in my travels for 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 my ministry, 
uh, encountering a man in front of an abortion facility was there in favor of, of it. And his sign said, keep baby killing legal. And I, I, I looked at him and I said, is this person on our side and trying to make the point? Or is he on their side and, and just coming right out and admitting what it is? Turns out he was on their side. And uh, I remember talking with the guy and he was just like, oh, yeah, he says, uh, you know, sometimes it's OK. And um, that's where then we can pivot in those cases to, first of all, the idea we talked about before is maybe you're proving too much. You know, if it's sometimes OK to kill the innocent, why are you going to just restrict that to babies in the womb? Um, but the other thing we pivot to then is, OK, you're admitting this is the killing of a child. Uh is this helpful for that for that mother? Because um, presumably you're, you want to permit it in order to help her somehow. And then we go to all the evidence of how abortion harms women. Okay. Yes. Well, there was another aspect of the conversation that uh, Jake brought up to me, which was, um, so one of our arguments was that abortion is no real harm because the children killed are going to go to heaven something something to that effect. I don't know the exact words, but it was basically that. And then the other aspect was you're not permitted to uh, disallow abortion unless there's no kids in foster care. Is that, that am I remembering yeah, that, that was, right? Yeah, that was something I didn't share that part with Father Frank, but yeah, the lady was saying um, there, there should be zero children waiting for a foster family. And, and until that point, you're not, you know, there's there, there's no reason to, to stop abortions because there's children are already waiting for, for a home. And that was her other logic. That's the other point that she brought up. So, so in other words, we're going to wait until there's zero kids in foster care. Uh, and in the meantime, we'll kill the, uh, kill the other ones so that they don't end up in foster care? Was that the thrust? Yeah, that's, what, that's what she was saying. Yeah. And you know what I would, again, there's a way we could talk about this among ourselves or, the, you know, a more gradual, gentle way to lead them to this conclusion. But the conclusion I try to lead her to is, hey, listen, why wait? You can bring it to zero tomorrow just by killing all the kids that are in foster care. Well, why, if you want to bring it to zero, if there's something good about that, what are you waiting for? And obviously, it's like, well, we can't kill them. You know, well, we're saying we can kill them a little bit earlier. What's the difference? And I think that's where there's this, it's amazing how, you know, I guess the human mind can, can rationalize anything. And, uh, you know, how is it? I think it's a, it's a constant, there's a pattern to the answer to so many of the, of the arguments of the other side. The pattern being, if what you're just, if what you're, you're saying justifies Ending the life in the womb, how does it not justify ending the life uh, out of the womb? Especially if you think about a mom who says, well, I'm getting my abortion because I'm too young. Let's just take the age. I'm too young to be a mother. Hey, listen, there's a lot of circumstances where I'll agree with you that you're too young. Um, but if you bring that child to birth and you're holding the baby on the day of his or her birth, are you still too young to be a mother? And if you're still too young to be a mother... Was it okay to kill that child? Uh, oh, I don't have the me. I don't have the financial means or other socioeconomic support or means to raise the child. And I'm not going to disagree with you. Tell me your circumstances, and I'll understand your problem. 
but bring that child to birth and have your socioeconomic situation improve as it improved? Not necessarily, probably not. It's okay to kill the child, therefore. Well, no. Well, what's the difference? And there's that. There's this. Peter Singer said it very well, and of course he's an ethicist with whom we would disagree on a lot of things. But Peter said, you know, there's only two consistent positions: either oppose abortion or endorse infanticide. He says, but but he says those are the only two consistent positions because in birth. The physical process of birth cannot be such a monumental event that ch literally changes whether that's a human being or a human person or not. And he's got, I think, a pretty strong philosophical insight there, you know, as far as consistency goes, right, in terms of the value of life. You could say a lot of things about Peter Staker. Uh, being inconsistent is not, not going to stick. Right. He is one of the most consistent ethicists out there. Um, I studied under Michael Tooley, who has somewhat the same position. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm familiar with the position. But, so, but I, I think sometimes people want to get around the moral status of the early stages of development of the, of the human organism. Like, they want to get away from that and talk about other aspects of a debate. But what I find out, like you're saying here, is that it almost always circles back around to that glaring disagreement, is what is the moral status of an embryo, a zygote, fetus, right, baby, early stages of development of the human person. Yes, yes. Pastor Michael, let me ask you this. From your observation, I find this constant... Um, uh, what might we call it, a, 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 an avoidance of the biology, a, 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 a just an avoidance. A, and at the same time, you know, we've got this um, uh, mantra invoked on, on various issues in, uh, in our day now of so follow science. Well, science is important. You know, we all, you know, had to learn science in, in grade school. Um, and it's certainly at the foundation of so many things in our lives. Um, but when it comes to abortion, especially, I mean, so many of the folks, and we're talking about people in pretty high places of society, academia, in politics, in the courts, and these are not stupid people, but they're, they speak as if we don't know anything about the, develop, the biological development of the child in the womb. They, they just speak as if we, you know, we just don't know, we just don't know. Um, but we but we do know this whole body of science, embryology, um, that shows us the facts, that shows us the science. What do you make of this um, this 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 avoidance of just of the basic biology? Yeah, I, I'm actually seeing it in not just abortion debates, but lots of things that have to do with sex and gender right now. There's an avoidance of biology or a very self-serving and disingenuous engagement with biology. Um, it comes up at end-of-life issues as well. Um, although, in fairness, from at least where I see it, I feel like those are actually more hard cases. I don't think early life is ne nearly as difficult to figure out what's going on because I think assigning somebody the value of being actually dead is actually quite tricky in a weird way at the very end of life. Um, but... I think for most people, they really don't know. 
like the the person on the street. Yeah, we get taught a lot of things about biology, but I mean, we get taught a lot of things about history too. I mean, one of the things the previous career of mine is being a teacher, and I I would teach kids lots and lots of stuff, and I would be very familiar with the curriculum about English or history or or whatever. And uh, and then there was constantly this refrain from outside the school, we were never taught this. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm pretty sure you were. You just didn't remember you weren't paying attention, right? So I don't know if the average person really knows, but what is disheartening is the higher level people who really do know better or ought to know better and are very selective and self-serving with what they choose to focus on. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a selective, uh, it's a selective paying attention or avoidance. And, uh, I think that's where, isn't that where perhaps our, our role as pastors, um, comes in too it's like calling for like a a spiritual integrity it's like we can't just take some portions of the truth let's let's look at the whole truth let's not be afraid of the truth and then acknowledging it welcoming and letting it shape our thinking then we can then we can defend whatever ground we find ourselves standing on but but this this selective desire to avoid certain kinds of truth it can't be healthy right it can't be healthy spiritually yeah, I mean, there's something to be said about whether something is like uh, developmentally appropriate to you know how old right. of a right. child you're talking to about these things. But you know, and there's 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 certain times where you feel like you can be more blunt about things, and other times where you need to you know couch your language a little bit. But but yeah, I, I don't shy away from learning about biology. I I was very excited, and I always have been very excited to learn about biology. I, I made sure to take two years of it in high school, and I only was required to take one. So, uh, I, I learned a lot and, and it served me well in life. And I, I would definitely want to teach my own kids and the kids of the church eventually to the extent that I'm involved in their education about all kinds of truths, including biology. Right. Right. It's so core to this issue. Like you said, to many other issues in our, uh, in our world today. Um, right. I, I do think the sticking point still philosophically is going to be what aspect of humanity is morally important. So for the singer, Michael Tooley, Peter Singer view, uh, what's important is some kind of brain function. So even though they're very astute, both of those guys on the biology, they're always going to say that's what's important and not these other aspects of human biology. And so I think even a very sophisticated person could have that position. I I don't know that's where most, I don't think that's where most people are, but right. um, I'd, be, I'd be really happy if a conversation got to that point, honestly, where we were talking about um, what, what features of humanity are morally relevant, what are, what kinds of things matter to whether a creature, any kind of creature, but especially a human creature right? Whether they have a moral status where we shouldn't just, um, kill it or kill it, uh, because of the weight of other kinds of consequences. Right. Right. Yeah. That brings up, uh, an interesting point. Um, uh, in this whole abortion debate, a lot of people will say to you and me, well, you know, you have your religious beliefs, but I, I don't want you imposing those beliefs on anyone, nor especially imposing them through the law. And, you know, I've always responded to that by saying to them, um, 
the law protects your life, the law protects my life. That law that protects us doesn't require anybody to believe anything about us. Because if somebody kills an adult and they're brought into court to explain themselves, and they say, well, Your Honor, you know, I, uh, I, I, I killed uh, John, but uh, I don't believe that John had a soul. Or I don't believe that John was a person using some kind of philosophical category. I didn't believe that. Well, the judge is going to say, you know what? doesn't matter. I don't care what you believe. You can believe what you want. You can take any religious or philosophical view that you want. What's, what matters here in this courtroom is you took that person's life. You can't do that. So, so what does the law do? Does the law impose a belief? Or does the law protect us despite people's belief? I don't care if somebody believes or doesn't believe that I have a soul. I just don't want them to kill me. And, 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 and this is what the law is meant to accomplish. And what, what we say when we're trying to protect the unborn is, all right, you know, what you believe about the unborn we can have philosophy discussions. We can have, as far as religion, you know, we're, this is why we preach. This is why we teach. Listen to it and, and see if you're persuaded. Pray about it. Think it through. But as far as your behavior, no. The law, we just want the unborn to have the same protections as the rest. Of and uh, that you can't take someone's life because of your beliefs. And uh, I think that's a... You know, that's because it's, it's a constant argument from the other side, isn't it? You know, we're made to feel like we're imposing our beliefs on people. That's not what we want to do. Yeah, I would love to get to a point in our culture where we have much more of a default toward if it's human life, then it's protected. And then you have to come up with some kind of extenuating circumstance. Now, there are people that do argue that abortion meets that, and I... I have arguments with people about that. Like, so they want to say abortion is akin to um, self-protection, like it's akin to self-defense, for example. But but I think they're on at least more rational grounds there, and, and they're at least giving the presumption that this is a human life that has moral weight, just like yours and mine does. Right. And, and that would be great if we could start the conversation there and then talk about whether there's some kind of circumstance or excuse that says even though this is a valuable human life with dignity you know we have we're allowed here to do something that we maybe wouldn't ordinarily do you know there's a psychological dimension here um in the whole debate over abortion if and i i i've been very involved over the last uh a year, year and a half with this Dobbs case at the Supreme Court, and um, one of you looking at the the dissenting opinion in the in that case, uh, those justices in favor of keeping abortion uh, uh, as a constitutional right, and um, also looking at some of the other reaction that we've been getting from uh, again people pretty highly placed in our society. There's a um, a temptation to make it a one-dimensional question. But what I mean is, uh, they'll say, well, this is terrible because you're taking away women's rights. Okay. So, so we know that there are people who are thinking that way. You're taking away women's rights, and that, for, the, for them, that settles. 
And one of the things that came across in the decision was that the justices in the majority said, here's the most striking thing about the dissenting opinion. And I would say not only about the dissenting opinion, but about much of the reaction to this decision that has come from the uh, supporters of legal abortion. And what's that striking element? No consideration whatsoever for the existence or value of that baby. None at all. Well, like you're saying, Pastor Michael, and I think like a lot of people realize it in, in our, you know, among our fellow citizens, there is a balancing to be done. And there are asserted rights of the of the of the mother, and there are asserted rights of that child. And we know more about that child today than we ever knew in human history. Um, but the balancing can can be a really challenging action, philosophically, medically, legally, constitutionally. How do you balance uh, those two lines? Because with abortion, we have an absolutely unique circumstance. We have a person inside another person. We have a life inside. A, it's the only. It's the only time we have that. You can make all kinds of arguments about you know whose life should we protect? When is self-defense okay? When is this? When is that? Uh, uh, but these are all you know. These are none of these other circumstances are a life inside a life. And and I think that's that uniqueness of abortion makes it so difficult for so many people to resolve on all these levels. But so the temptation, as I say, psychology comes in here. It's like okay. If I want to make things easy in this debate, I'll just drop one of the two out of the equation altogether. And I just, no, if I just don't acknowledge there's even a second life there, oh, it becomes easy. We can't restrict women's rights, period, amen. Settled, discussion settled. Um, uh, and it's just this one-dimensional di this, this one view of the whole thing. I think it's just um, we got to tell people, oh, you're not so fast. You, we know that's a temptation to make it the easy way out. But we've got a there's a weighing and balancing to be to be done here, right? And and usually that weighing, in my opinion, takes quite a bit. As in, the mother's life has to be in danger for there to be a a valid moral exception, in my opinion. But I I would much rather be arguing on those those grounds, like you said, acknowledge that there is a living human being that has moral worth that we have to take into account. Exactly. Yeah. Otherwise, they're escaping, like we said before, is avoidance of the biology. You know, it's, 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 there's nothing there. Nothing right. Really there. No, but there is. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I, I do. I think maybe, yeah, biology education might might be a way to move move our culture forward. Yeah, I mean, it might be as simple as that. Um, but you would have you would have to have people who um, didn't shy away from exactly what's occurring. Um, when you talk about biological development, I mean, I, one of the things that's very difficult for me as a school teacher is to see how ideologically slanted a lot of school teaching and education has become. So, it, you know, a, a, as much as I could say, oh, this would be a simple fix, like, I, I don't know if I fully trust the kinds of teachers that would be teaching the kids. Um, but maybe, maybe if the curriculum was assigned and, uh, and you said, we would like you to talk about human development from the earliest get-go all the way up. Right, it could be the kind of thing that would be part of a ninth grade biology class because that's important information for just about everybody to know, and mm -hmm. including human anatomy and all of the things like that. Um, and maybe just the raw facts of it would have some impact even if it was coming from an ideologically biased source.
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The facts are this certain point at which you have to say the facts are what they are. And uh, here's the research. Roe Roe versus Wade, by the way, skipped over hundreds of years of medical knowledge. You know, that that opinion, um, yeah, it's been criticized by even supporters of legal abortion, criticized not for its conclusion, but for its attempt at reasoning. And and when it comes to the to the medicine, I mean, it stops in the the medieval ages. You know, it that doesn't even take into account uh, what we've learned in the last few centuries. Um, it's an amazing, it's an amazing gap when it when they're purportedly talking about, you know, who's in the womb or what's in the womb. Um, just a just a big gap there. Yeah. Uh, so this this would probably be a a, a sidetrack to the current. The current way we're going on the conversation but i did have this thought about um kind of preempting some of the some of the objections that we've talked about in and around this conversation with the way that we live our lives so interesting facts about me one is that i've tried to live for a very long time as a vegetarian <laughs> and and i actually have pro-life considerations for the, for for doing that and then um the other was uh becoming a foster and adoptive parent which once again is something that I did for pro-life considerations, not just, but, you know, I mean, the way that I live my life is on the whole, not just to win arguments or whatever, but it, uh, I wonder if how much we as people who are part of the church could take on board these more sacrificial ways of living, um, to kind of get around and, and or maybe advertise that we're kind of doing these things. One one thing that I find out a lot of times in these conversations is how little people know about um, how much Christians do for kids in foster care, for example. Like, there's a huge percentage of our church membership that foster or adopt or work in child protective services or work in different organizations that support mothers uh, who are going through crisis pregnancy or kids who are in foster care because they're born substance exposed or, you know, like any number of different things. Um, anyway, I'll stop there, but then give you a chance to respond. No, that's, that is that, that the power of witness, you know, the teaching, the, 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 the Christian faith, it seems to me, you know, has progressed through the world by the power of its teaching and the power of the witness. And, uh, what you're doing there is, is, you know, is, is, it's witnessing. And, you know, even if we, if we do things sacrificially that at the same time we say, Hey, I'm not saying that everybody has to do this. That's not the, the point is not whether people have to do it. The point is look at what I'm doing and uh, let it be a witness uh, to the direction we need to go. Um, it is so true that, uh, you know, we've got it, right now, I don't know if um, how many of our, our audience is, is familiar, but a beautiful film just came out two months ago called Life Mark. And Life Mark is, is about David Scott and is a young man from Louisiana who was adopted and at a certain point wanted to uh, wanted to meet his birth mother. And it's so the whole story of him wrestling with that, it, 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 their encounter. And, and the, the dominant thing that comes across in this movie is 
you know, the power of love that is lived out in in adoption uh, overcomes that the, the 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 distinction between a, a child that I physically gave birth to versus a child I welcomed by love into my family. So beautiful life mark, um, but uh, people need to see that. You know, one of the key people that was converted uh, to from a pro-abortion position to pro-life was was the founder of the abortion movement in America, Dr. Bernard Nathanson. Um, and uh, I knew him. And he, when he first changed from being an abortion promoter to a, a pro-life advocate, he still was not a believer. And he said, what, what, what brought me across that line was the science. He said, but then what brought me to faith was looking at the pro-life people and I mean, I had already accepted their argument, but I looked at the way they lived. I looked at the love that they had for these children and the sacrifices they were willing to make to save them, whether they were taking them upon into their own care by adoption, by, by being foster parents, by, by all the kinds of service they did, or by sacrificing themselves, as we were talking at the beginning of our conversation, out in front of those abortion facilities, and and just intervene and you know and enduring the the ridicule the persecution the you know all kinds of things brought against them um but there was he said there was something there that i did not know about there was a i could see there was a power and and he said i came to realize it was the power of love and uh and that's what and then he said i also came to believe because of the way the pro-lifers treated me they treated me with such love and kindness and welcome uh, and so I think your witness and the witness of so many people who are, first of all, doing what we all need to be doing, and secondly, going above and beyond and doing some additional things that make people think. I, I, I think we've got to make people scratch their head. Say, well, why is he, why is he doing that? Well, why is she living like that? Well, how come, how come he's going out of his way to do that? And we make people scratch their heads, and I think they're, that, that's how we're getting them on the path to conversion. So yeah. thank you for your yeah. thank you for your witness. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I wouldn't want to portray it as um, quite as rosy of a picture as the movie here that I haven't seen. Uh, but from your summary, this it's rough. Uh, being a foster and adoptive parent is not easy um, right. for most of the parents that I know that are trying to do that. But it does come out of the love that we have given to us by Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. But um, and, and that's powerful. That's, that is a powerful witness, like you said. Um, even if it doesn't automatically go well or automatically persuade, it gives us a certain kind of integrity to stand in when we say, this is a human person and that we care about this. Like, this is not right. This is how this person needs to be treated. Because um, we're doing it ourselves. Right. Right. I think people want to see that consistency. Um, they want to see a consistency in us, and uh, uh, you know, sometimes they 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 want to see it out of out of goodwill because they they recognize it makes sense. And other times, the other side will try to use it as a as a battering ram. You know, oh, how many children are you adopting? You know, it's it's it, it, but but either way, whether they're using it out of goodwill or bad will, it, it's it's. Uh, uh, it, it's a consistency that, uh, and a witness that the world needs. Yeah, I, I just, I, 
it, it feels like a battering ram, but sometimes I wonder if our doors are solid enough to take that because, um, a huge percentage of the people who do foster care are Christians and do it out of a Christian witness. Right. Like a, a, a really large percentage, like a shocking number. Um, and I don't know that the public at large is aware of that. Just how much Christians really go out of their way to provide for kids in need and, and really are meeting like Christians overwhelmingly are meeting the wait until there's no kid in foster care kind of demand. Like, um, it's, it's Christians who are adopting not just one, but two, or, you know, fostering 17 kids, right? Like, I mean, that's the kind of thing that plenty of Christians are doing. They are. They are. Absolutely. Um, I, I think I'm going to hold myself to one, but, uh, <laughs> cause one is, one is, one is a lot, <laughs> uh, it, it, I, I, we didn't pick up on the vegetarian thing. It's fine. It's kind of weird, but, um, it's, it's, so Peter Singer, we've mentioned him already. He brings this argument that like, well, okay, if you care about young humans, you, you, you should care about, uh, animals just as much. And just as an exercise, I wanted to see if I could manage to pull off being a vegetarian to kind of, you know. Because I do think that animals have some kind of moral weight. It's not the kind of moral weight that, uh, and value that humans have, but they have some. So I wanted to see, okay, so could I do it? And then I realized in large part I could. And um, and I do wonder if in some of the same way that Christians could adjust our lifestyle in a sacrificial way. And once again, not because we have to, but because we're motivated out of a concern for life in the world, not just human life, but life and creation as a whole. Uh, and that would be a way to meet some people's ideas of like, okay, so do you have the kind of integrity to tell us about abortion? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, as you were talking there, uh, I, uh, you know, and the moral weight that, that animals certainly do have, I'm struck by, and I often use it as an example when we're talking about pro-life uh, legislation, you know, some of the, the proposals that have been made and they've passed in a number of states are laws that would protect babies from the point where there is at least a strong scientific consensus that they can feel pain. And often in the midst of those debates, I've pointed out that we have, even though we, we slaughter cattle in order to have our, our beef, we have in federal law the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act, which is meant to well, protect these animals from pain in, in, in slaughtering them. And it's like, how could we be at the point, but we are there, where we have that in place for very good reason, and we think we should all be in full support of that, um, and yet we don't have a similar law in place for these children in the womb. Uh, whatever people, again, whatever value people think they have, we're, we're not even protecting them from the pain of, a, of an abortion procedure. And I think this is one of the things that, that make people think twice. Uh, and, and also, you reminded me of, uh, you know, one of our newest groups in the pro-life movement is called PAU, P-A-A-U. It's, it's the Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising. And I know all of the people who are involved, the founders and the leaders, and here we have people who are identifying themselves as progressives, 
Many of them are atheists. Um, politically, they're Democrats. Uh, some of them are vegetarians. And uh, for the very reasons that you were just explaining. And um, these are people who a lot of our opponents uh, in this battle would not expect to find in the pro-life movement. And yet they uh, are making some, you know, very consistent arguments and, and some very good witness. Yeah, I mean, it's been helpful to me. I'm, by the way, I'm not currently living as a vegetarian, but that what I found is that it, 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 was, it was doable, and I'm not suggesting that everybody can do it, just like I'm not suggesting every single person could be a foster parent. But I do think it would be useful for people to take those things seriously as people who are pro-life, who are interested in creating a culture of life, who are interested in pushing forward a more moral way of living just across the board. Right. Um, Our sponsor for this episode is irapture.com. That's I-R-A, P as in Paul, T as in Tom, U-R-E.com. irapture.com provides intelligent, mission-minded marketing for pregnancy clinics. irapture.com helps pregnancy clinics reach clients at risk of choosing abortion through content marketing. For help reaching your audience, contact irapture.com. Supporting our sponsors like irapture.com supports the Pro-Life Team podcast. Shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green. He leads me by quiet.